Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Today I'm in the artist project space at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art with artist Matthew Picton and his exhibition, Cultural Mapping. Born in London, Picton studied politics and history at the London School of Economics. He has been a professional artist since 1998, exhibiting his work widely in the US and in Europe. Cultural Mapping is on view through January 20th, 2019. Thanks, Matthew, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning, um, because I know your journey is an interesting one. You, we're going to be a politics and history study at the London School of Economics. So how did you get here? Right. It's a good question. And I mean, it seems to be a far remove in some respects. But um, I, I was studying politics and history. And whilst interested in the subject matter, I found that there was, there was a lack of ability to, to create anything. You, you know, that I, I wanted to create, not even physically create something, but create something original. And to me, just sort of wading through endless tombs in the library and creating some essays about subject matter wasn't going to quite do that for me. Plus, I also met a friend who was going to art school at the time. And, um, and it just seemed very exciting, you know, what he was doing, where he was going. And so I thought, well, I could start doing that as well. It was a long journey. I mean, it took me a lot of years experimenting and not quite getting really down to it and, until I like, moved to San Francisco, really. And then everything changed. Well, I wouldn't say everything changed. <laughs> it, was, it was, again, a slow process of like, acquiring skills and sort of uh, abilities and, sort of, and direction at the same time. So how did you um, come to be fascinated by cartography? Mapping. Well, uh, cartography is something I've always been fascinated by, and I, I grew up in England where going for the, the ritual Sunday walk is part of the fabric of living, and uh, you'd be forced out whether you liked it or not, and of course your father would be out there with his, with his big map collection, you need to pour over it and see which boggy fields you're going to walk through that Sunday. And, um, you know, but I, you know, we used to go to Scotland every year and pour over more of these very detailed maps, and I used to love them. And, sort of start to imagine the sort of possibilities of landscape and, and, and eventually history from them. So I, that's how it started. And even early on when I started painting, I used to sort of inscribe sort of cartographic forms into those pieces. And this was when I was about 23 or 4. So one of the major series that you've done, and there's one piece in this show which is from the series, is, is the City series. That's right. So tell us how you started working on the City series and how that work's evolved over time. Um, well, the City series emerged from, I think initially in one way, just because there is a sort of wonderful sense of abstraction when you particularly look down from, say, the top of the Eiffel Tower down onto the, the, the spreading form of Paris. And I, I started just creating these three-dimensional map sculptures of the infrastructure of cities. And while I was creating those pieces, I, um, I, you couldn't help but imagine the history. And in so doing, the, the work transitioned into, into pieces that contained uh, visual imagery, text, um, and historic maps at the same time, acquired greater depth. And then imagery from film and music scores and everything else sort of was able to then come into the piece. Um, so 
tell us about this, the one piece here, Berlin, 1928 to 1988. Just can you say a little bit about that piece yeah. specifically? Yeah, uh, well, that's a good piece. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sculpture of the divided Berlin, essentially, pre the war coming down. And so the, the larger area in the piece, which is the, the whiter area, is, um, is the surface of that is taken from Wim Wenders, Wim Wenders film, At the Wings of Desire. And the darker area is from The Lives of Others, which is a film set in East Berlin during the Stasi years. Um, so that, that's essentially the surface of the piece. And when you look into the, into the sculpture itself, there is imagery from a map of Berlin from 1932 that's been fragmented with some of the imagery from Fassbinder's um, Berlin Alexanderplatz film. And that also the wall itself has imagery from, from all the paintings that adorned the wall before it was destroyed. So, so there are many layers of imagery. The Fassbinder film is looking at the Berlin of the pre-war, the 28, the, the, the pre-sort of rise of Nazism when the city was starting to fall to pieces. Whereas the Wim Benders film has the echoing space of the post-war period. So tell us a little bit about the technique. You've mentioned these layers and all the different kinds of materials that you introduced. Um, our viewers will see that there are these layers. There's a whole series of successive layers. How do you do that? Well, I, I create series of templates. So, so in this case, we have, we have a more modern map and we have an older map. So the first, the first thing to do is to try to line up the scale between the, between the older map and the new map. And then create paper templates and cut through with, a, with an X-Acto knife on different tables and layers. So the, the back layer has been set aside, cut through, the template peeled off, everything that's within it pinned into the surface underneath and the top layer likewise similarly. So it's, it's, a, it, it's a sort of a sculpture that requires um, six or seven tables to lay out each section before finally they're all assembled together and pinned together. And that particular piece is, in a, is, a, is framed, but uh, we're standing in front of a piece here um, and this piece behind us, which is also in a frame. But this one I know you assemble that's each right. time it's displayed. So On tell site. us a little bit about right. that. I mean, look, it's right. a massive piece. Yes, it's a massive piece. I mean, it's, it's like the one constraint with the frame is that, well, the weight of the frame, the size of the plexiglass, there, there's a constraint. And at round about six feet is you're really going to be getting into some big problems. When, <laughs> you know, weight-wise, it would just be impossible. Uh -huh. Plus, expense-wise, those, those plastic sheets become custom-made and a fortune. And so this particular subject matter demanded scale. And I mean, and there's a smaller one over there with a lot of the, um, of the river system missing because it, I had to sort of condense it. And so I decided to just, just to leave the frame behind and create something that was site-specific and mounted all in pieces so that I could attain the scale of the, um, of the geography and topography. Right, so let's talk a little bit about the majority of the pieces that are in this show um, are about the Congo, the Amazon, and the Mekong River basins. That's right. So um, the exhibition catalog, which is a beautiful catalog, um, includes an essay that, of yours titled Mapping Conquest and Colonialism. So ha tell us about how these, um, pro th these works about these river systems um, express your interest in mapping conquest and colonialism? 
Well, uh, e each one of them reflects a, a, a degree of um, colonial exploration, essentially. And they're all about mapping. And uh, I, think, I think the pieces start with the one behind you there, Paul, which is the one El Dorado. And that's looking, looking back historically to the, to the early days of colonialism, the Spanish plunder of that particular period. And that, that, that sort of set the, set the tone and the template for what was then to occur in the Congo with these pieces. And ultimately with, um, with this piece in the Mekong as well, in a sort of more modernized version, each one having relationships and links to a previous uh, period. So tell us about um, some of the material that is in play here. Well, in, in play here, there, there, there were a lot of uh, actually unknown engravings by 19th century engravers who were, who were busily depicting El Dorado. And El Dorado had it held a fascination for centuries. They, they, you know, the Spanish believed in it, and, and later on, Victorian explorers believed in it too. And so there was, there was legend has it, there was, a, there was a king who lived on the shores of a lake and he was adorned and anointed in gold every morning. And so, so they, they busily made these quite fantastic engravings of, of the imagined scenes. And also they, they depicted on the map where, where, the, uh, where Manoa on Lake Parim was meant to exist, which was somewhere between um, modern day Venezuela and Brazil. In, in, in some sort of area then. There was speculation as to, well, why did, they, why did they believe this was there to start with? And there was some possibility that the rivers used to create these massive floods of many tens of thousands of acres at certain times of the year, and that maybe someone had seen this flooding and, and believed that this was it. But there, there were expeditions for 300 years looking for that. And, so, and it was actually on the map. That was so, so incredible that the old maps for three centuries had it on there as though it was fact. So how do you get from the Amazon to the Congo? Well, the Amazon and the Congo, um, it's, it's a good question. They're, they're linked by, by the fact of, um, of, of time period. I mean, it was, it was there in the, 19, the nine, early 1900s where the big rubber boom was going on in the Amazon basin. And it's famously producing Manaus and the Opera House in Manaus. And, you know, there was a, it was a pretty sort of horrible sort of period of extraction and semi-slavery. But at exactly the same time in history, there in the, in the Congo basin, there was a similar type of and a more hidden process going on with King Leopold's Belgian Congo. And at, 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 you know, there, there was like enormous slavery and enormous sort of death and, ex and enormous destruction went on during this period. And it seemed kind of fascinating as a parallel that these two almost like lung-shaped uh, intricacies of river system were sort of being infiltrated by the poison of the West at the same time. So that's how I then moved to the Congo. So tell us about the material that is uh, in, in the history of the Congo River number two, this large piece behind you. Well, this, this large piece behind us has, um, underneath the, the surface forms, there, there, are, there are sort of partially visible elements of um, a comic book novel. Uh, made by Jean Saint-Michel of the Mobutu, early Mobutu areas, which was somewhat of a sort of propaganda magazine, really, when it came down to it, but provided an interesting visual history of the period. Uh, at the same time, 
Tishy Bumber and other artists were creating a uh, series of paintings which were, um, which were, which were very uh, confrontational to the, to the ruling ideology at the time. And they were mostly creating paintings of the, the death and assassination of Lumumba. And Lumumba was, a, um, was, was the first leader of the, of the free Congo. And he was um, not too well liked by the former masters and other factions who could see that his particular economic bent was going to mean that to them losing uh, control of the resources. So by uh, some, some sort of manoeuvring, eventually maneuver, Mobutu came into power. So, so the, the imagery on those is, is mostly of, of Lumumba's uh, period leading up to his assassination and his death, but also there's imagery from masks from the Luba Kingdom, which were the pre-colonial, pre-Belgian sort of pre era uh, Luba Kingdom, which had an incredible ancient history of, um, of artist, artistry and um, the likes. Sorry. So the, the, um, the first Congo piece, um, that also has a component of Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, that, Yes, that has that as well. I mean, The, the Heart of Darkness, I mean, it, it's, it's less, um, it's, it, I mean, that, The Heart of Darkness actually enters the, uh, the, the text and imagery more in the Mekong piece in the uh -huh. centre here. I mean, and it's, it's more sort of relative to the Apocalypse Now piece over there. But the heart of darkness. I mean, I, I actually, I actually did, didn't introduce text into these two pieces. I thought about it, but it just wasn't quite right. That text ended up in the next piece. So even though that, of course, the heart of darkness emerged from from that period. Joseph Conrad visited um, the Congo in those early 1900s and was appalled by what he witnessed and the heart of darkness was born out of that, which actually led eventually to the uh, overthrow of uh, Leopold's rule there. So you've already begun to explain how you get from the Congo to the Mekong and these two pieces, Apocalypse yes. uh, Now One and Apocalypse Now Two. Tell us about those pieces. Uh, well, the, those, Apocalypse Now is um, a very famous film, obviously, in Coppola. Uh, looked to the heart of darkness as his, as his inspiration and he was making a film about Vietnam of course at the time and he um, claims to have loosely based it upon the story but it, it maintains enough similarity to the original story to be somewhat faithful I think and he basically recontextualized that tale into, into the present, uh, well into the, into the 1960s in the, in the Mekong and so the, the film moves back and forward, in a sense, between that original novel and the contemporary experience in Vietnam. So tell us about some of the materials that are actually literally in these two pieces. Um, well, the, 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 well, the materials are mostly, mostly paper, but in, in the piece on the right here, we have uh, imagery from the film and one central image of Captain Leon Rom, who is one of the one of the figures that Kurtz was based upon. There were there were three potential pieces that uh, that figures that um, Conrad could have based Kurtz upon uh, during his time. There were there were at least you know there were there were these very sort of bloody figures. One whose whose whole house was surrounded by skulls, and so I think he created Kurtz from that, and so that became that figure. There were also figures of the 
images of the, the playgirls from the helicopter when it lands in the middle of the jungle and such things like that. And what about this, the, the second? Well, the, se the, second, the second piece has got a, a greater width of, um, of texture to it. I mean, that, that has imagery from the Viet there was There were a lot of war artists in the Viet Cong side during the, during the war. And so some of the imagery is taken from those artists' depiction of the war. Some of the imagery is actually from the film, and it's been blurred and scraped and stained in colour. So that, so that the, the, the visual imagery between the, the, the fiction and the fact is, is quite blurred between the two. And then there's a central image taken from the film poster of Kurtz, and there's also text from um, The Heart of Darkness in that piece as well. Can you say a little bit about the red in that one? Uh, well, the red uh, is, is obviously, the red is the entire Mekong River system as it comes down into the delta. So, and the red obviously has connotations of a, of a bloodstream, but it also has an arterial connection at the same time. It's like the river is seen as a, as a series of arteries in a, in a in a being or a body or a landscape or a, a land mass. One other question I have is um, most of the pieces in this show are in are circular. That's right, yeah. Why? Why circular? Uh, well, there's, there, there are really two reasons for that. The, the circle in itself is a powerful form and relates obviously globally to the sphere that we live in. And also, it's because the geography always continues further. So where do you exactly draw the, the line? You know, it's like otherwise it's an arbitrary form, and any arbitrary form has to have some type of boundary to it. So whether it's misshapen or it's a square, none of it's going to be quite right. Yes, if you could only encompass all of it, which is, which is always the conundrum. <laughs> and that's the same with cities. They have, they, they have an amazing form as they spread out to the edge, but you can never make a sculpture big enough to actually encompass the whole thing. So, so the square was a solution to the problem. I mean, sorry, a circle was a solution to the problem. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, in the Mekong River Apocalypse Now 2 the, the way that you blurred or worked up the images to sort of blur fact and fiction. Say a little bit more about your understanding of the relationship between fact and fiction in your work. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, I, 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 feel, I feel like there's, it's, there's, there's always recorded history, which is always going to be a bit subjective, if not a lot subjective. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's recollections, there's memories, there's people's apparent knowledge or memory of any given event that are then interpreted. So there's already some coloration. And then there's the filmmaker who's going in to sort of create a, maybe a narrative, but at the same time is sort of making a sort of documentary, but taking some liberties at the same time. And so, so inevitably there's an interplay between the two. And then there's the interplay of the, of the viewer, which the, the viewer has sort of inhabiting them cinematic imagery, which, which, which sometimes I don't actually feel like leaves people. And so I think in terms of this sort of Apocalypse Now situation, I feel that the, the troops going in already had ideas about what, you, what it was meant to be like to be at war, because <clears throat> they'd seen films of it, right? And so they made a film about these, a film about people going to war. And it has a sort of ironic type of, uh, ironic type of uh, form to it in, this, in the sense that it, it's a war film, it's sort of like a documentary, but it's also 
posing as a war film at the same time. So, so there's, there's already a blur between what's fiction, what's correct, what isn't. You started out uh, studying politics and history, and you've, it, all through our discussion, you've been talking about history in a variety of different ways. Right. Say a little bit about your understanding of the relationship between art and history. Art and history. Well, um, I, to me, art is art is always the is, is either the reflector of history, or it's the precursor of history. So, I mean, if you looked at the uh, the Doblin novel, the Berlin Alexanderplatz, and and obviously the film is made years later after the event. But the novel, the novel, you know, as an art form, is is seeing the destruction coming, and just like the. The, the pre-Nazi uh, era artists in the 20s Berlin, I mean, they're sort of shrieking, horrible pictures, paintings of the period, all point to a catastrophe looming, but they're, but they're like sort of the, the, the canary in the coal mine, sort of, you know, they're, they're the harbingers of fates to come. So I, I see that that relation there is, is one of, um, it's, it's sometimes an unconscious reflection. So I know from uh, the work that you've done of cities and now these uh, uh, river systems, you, you tend to work in series and they yes, can go on for many right. years. Yeah. Um, so you've done these, these all of the, the uh, river pieces that are in the show are all from 2018. Is this part of a much longer, uh, I mean, are you Im imagining further um, river well, systems works? Yes and no. I mean, it's like I've, um, I'm, I'm extending the, the Apocalypse Now theme into a slightly different area. Um, because to me, there's, there's further to go with that particular theme, and that doesn't involve another river. That, that involves a somewhat different project, which is looking more back into the medieval idea and notion of the apocalypse, oh, specifically as seen by Dürer. And that, to me, sort of takes the idea backwards in time where, where there was, you know, the apocalypse was something that was on people's minds seemingly in that era of history perpetually. The end of the world was something that people always were thinking about and there was a lot of sort of superstition and fate and I think it's particularly, I think it's particularly relevant to the, to the, to the time that we live in now where I think, I think there's massive anxiety around the whole world with the sort of ecological troubles that are gathering increasing pace, the sort of you know, the, the uh, protectionist ideologies that are going on politically at the same time. And so, um, so you know, I'm, ex I'm, so I'm moving away slightly, but back to the idea of doing more rivers. I mean, I have, I have some thoughts about some other river systems, I mean, particularly the Ganges, but it's, a, it's not a related project topic-wise to these. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really something where I might uh, wait and gather more material. And, and decide which approach to take, and that you know, there's a, so there's not an urgent one, but I think maybe in a couple of years I'll have the approach and the material, and then I might embark upon it. Can you say a little bit about the kind of research you do before you start making the pieces? Um, well, well, obviously the first thing is with the wonders of modern technologies, you can very quickly get a quick overview of something on your little tablet, right? And then, having done that, I, I will then look for books and books are the primary sort of method of research and again nowadays you can acquire just about anything because you know there, there are various online sellers and you, you can research all the titles and they'll send you to other titles and I tend to buy a, a few stacks of books 
and then look and search amongst those for what I need to find and read around the subject, and that is the usual method. And you also go to the places often. Whenever possible, yeah. I mean, yes, I mean, hope, I mean I've been to most of them, not all of them, but generally around, around this exhibit here, I haven't been to the Congo, but I mean, I have been to parts of Africa and parts of West Africa and obviously Berlin and so and Venezuela and those countries. So I, I do go and of course it, but I don't think it's essential. I mean, mm. you don't have to because, you know, it's an imagined universe at the same time. So I can create something without having been there. How long does it take to do one of these pieces? That's um, not even a fair question, I don't know. Well, um, you know, in the case of this big piece behind us here, this took, uh, I worked on it on and off for about nine months. You know, as I started, I thought, you know, I've got like nine months of the show here, so I'll, I'll just start doing it in sections. And of course, once I got going, I mean, I'm thinking, God, it's going to take ages, you know. Because <laughs> there were so many layers, and to keep cutting all these different pieces out. And so there was, some, there was some long weeks work involved in that one. But the other, other pieces, you know, I, I tend to like, I like a couple of months to, uh, to actually create the whole thing and find all the stuff and, yeah. So I also know that you uh, get commissions to do work. Yes, I do. So tell us about your attitude about commissioned work and how you fit that in. Oh, commission, well, <laughs> commissions are always funny because you get something and you think, oh, great, and you think, what am I going to do about that? Because <laughs> I usually might well not know anything about it at all. And so then there's a sort of initial scramble to try and see what there is and what you can actually make. Uh, Usually, though, it, they tend to turn into um, interesting, uh, it, they're, they're interesting in their own right, but they're also interesting because they, they, they push, push you to expand materially or conceptually because it will be not something that you are necessarily planning on doing, but, and, and it will demand some different approaches. So, so I, I look upon them as a challenge, but a, a welcome challenge, and so, you know, and I have two or three going at the moment and of course you know they they pay as well at the time which is good because obviously <laughs> you have to keep making a living so yeah. so you just mentioned that you're working on two or three at a time yeah. is it typically the case that you're working on multiple pieces at the same time oh yes very much yeah I mean I'm working on four pieces at the moment at home and are any of them as large as this one uh, Actually, actually, I'm doing the project for a hotel in San Luis Obispo, and it's a big piece. It's like two eight-by-four panels, so it's not quite that big, but it's big, though. And so, so I've got started on that, and it's about the history, history and the archaeology of San Luis Obispo. It's a massive piece, and it's a very detailed close-up project that I'm doing. How long does it take you to do that kind of project? Oh, that, that, that's a long, that's, it's taking a while. I've, I mean, I've been doing other things, but, you know, it, it's sort of extending itself over six months, that particular piece. So, yeah. Can I ask you about this one? How long did it take you to hang this piece? Oh, well, when, we, when uh, Claire and I first put this up, um, it took us all day. You know, it, was, it was an eight-hour event, that one, working hard. But when we came here this time, we, 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 we got some practice in. And actually, we got this up in only four and a half hours last time. So maybe we should like time ourselves and see if yes, we can beat the record in the Schneider. <laughs> well, Matthew, t thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's really been an interesting conversation. Oh, well, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I've been speaking with the artist Matthew Picton. His exhibition, Cultural Mapping, is on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through January 20th, 2019. Thanks so much for watching.